Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Merrill versus Milligan. The court will decide whether Alabama's 2021 redistricting plan violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Joining me to discuss Section 2 and the stakes in this important case are two of America's leading experts in election law. Rick Hassan is professor of law and director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project at UCLA. His most recent book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. Rick, it is wonderful to have you back on We the People. It's always great to be with you, Jeff. And Jason Torchinsky is a partner at Holtzman Vogel, specializing in campaign finance law, election law, and lobbying disclosure. He filed an amicus brief in Merrill versus Milligan on the side of Alabama on behalf of the National Republican Redistricting Trust. Jason, it's wonderful to have you back on the show as well. Great. Thanks for having me. Let us begin with the stakes in this important case. Rick, what are the stakes? So the Voting Rights Act, and particularly Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, has been really instrumental in causing states to draw congressional districts, state legislative districts, and local city council, county election districts in a way that assures that minority voters have uh, an opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. And uh, what's at stake if the court rethinks how Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act works is a potential diminution in the number of minority-preferred candidates that are actually elected to office. So it's about how much representation on the basis of race um, in order to make up for racial discrimination in the past, the Voting Rights Act is going to allow. Jason, how would you describe the stakes in the case? I think this case is really important because legislatures and other map drawers need some guidance between when they consider race too much and when they don't consider race enough. If they don't consider race enough and they violate Section 2, then they have a problem. If they consider race too much when they're not authorized to do so, then they violated the 14th Amendment. And this sort of, you know, if I veer too far to the left, I hit that side of the bowling alley. And if I veer too far to the right, I hit the other side of the bowling alley has been a challenge for legislatures for about the last 40 years since the Supreme Court came up with the jingles test. Justice Roberts recognized that when he wrote in his denial from the uh, from the grant of the stay in Alabama. And I think this is a real opportunity for the court to provide some some clarity. You know, over the last 15 years or so, every time a state has attempted to draw an additional majority minority district, it's been struck down as a 14th Amendment violation. And now Alabama is being told, well, you know, you guys got it wrong and you should have drawn an additional majority minority district. So, you know, states are in a real quandary here. And I think this case is an opportunity for the Supreme Court to sort of bring some clarification to those those two borders of the bowling alley. Rick, Jason described this as a case that raises the question, when do states consider race too much and when don't they consider race enough, uh, suggesting a tension between the Voting Rights Act and the 14th Amendment. Tell us about the history of the Voting Rights Amendments of 1982, how they responded to the Supreme Court's um, decision in the Mobile case and, and the way that they've been interpreted for a long time under the Jingles test to help our listeners understand this complicated area of law. Sure. I guess I'd start by saying I don't agree with Jason's characterization of the tension, but we can get into that a little later. Let me just talk about the history. So um, let's go back to before 1965. There was tremendous racial discrimination in voting in the United States, lots of parts of the United States, but especially in the South. Uh, the rates at which African-American voters were able to register to vote was incredibly low. We shouldn't even call them voters. They were citizens who were disenfranchised. And the Voting Rights Act came in in 1965 and did a number of things. One of the things it did was it uh, provided federal registrars to go down to register people to vote, provided all, uh, all kinds of protections against things like literacy tests, which were used in a discriminatory way to uh, frustrate voting uh, and frustrate registration. Uh, and it imposed something called preclearance, which said that states with a history of racial discrimination in voting uh, had to get federal approval before they could make changes in their voting rules and have to show that those changes wouldn't make minority voters worse off. 
that's Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. That provision was very effective in assuring that there was no backsliding. And that provision was in place until 2013 when the Supreme Court uh, held that uh, it violated the sovereignty of states because there wasn't current evidence that uh, these states that were covered by Section 5 were discriminating in a way that uh, they intentionally that they had in the past. So there was this anti-backsliding provision in the law in 1965, and it was very helpful. The registration was very helpful. Uh, African-American registration rates went up. But one of the things we saw was that, let's say you have a city council, and let's say that uh, 60% of the voters are white and 40% of the voters are African-American, and all the city council members, let's say there's five of them, are elected at large. Everybody votes for everyone. What we'd see in certain places where whites tended to prefer one set of candidates and African-Americans preferred another is you'd have an all-white city council, even though African-Americans made up about uh, 40% of the, of, uh, of the area. You know, they, they didn't get to elect representatives of their choice because whites and blacks were voting for different people. So uh, there was some constitutional litigation that was brought and, uh, uh, and, and um, litigation brought under the Voting Rights Act saying that when you have a situation like this, it's unconstitutional, it's illegal, and what the Supreme Court said in a 1980 case called City of Mobile versus Bolden is uh, that in order to bring a constitutional claim of vote dilution, that you don't have a chance to elect candidates of your choice, you have to prove that drawing of the district lines or the failure to draw district lines, the creation of an at-large district, was done for racially intentionally discriminatory reasons. So it wasn't enough to show a discriminatory effect. You had to show a discriminatory intent. In response to that, in 1982, Congress amended the Voting Rights Act, and they amended in particular Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And the, the key language here is that it said that minority voters should have the same opportunity as other voters to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Pretty vague language, wasn't clear initially exactly how it was going to play out, but we know that what Congress was trying to do, because they they said it uh, in what they wrote and what was in the accompanying legislative materials, legislative history, that they were trying to overturn stat statutorily that city of Mobile case from 1980 and impose what's called an effects test or a results test, which means that you don't have to prove racial discriminatory intent. You just have to show that the effect is one where minority voters have less opportunity to participate in the process. And then in 1986, the Supreme Court decided a case called Thornburg versus Jingles. And in that case, the Supreme Court told us what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act means in the context of redistricting. And they basically said it's a complex analysis. First, there's a three-part test. Are minority First, are minority voters uh, large enough in terms of the number of voters and geographically compact enough that you could create a district where minority voters could elect representatives of their choice? Uh, second, are the group of minority voters politically cohesive? Are they supporting the same candidates? And third, are the white voters also co politically cohesive and usually voting to defeat the candidates preferred by minority voters? If you can get over this so-called threshold test of jingles, these three tests, then you look at a whole bunch of other things like the history of racial discrimination and voting in the area and whether there are racial appeals in elections. And you go through this complex analysis. This is the analysis in the case that's before the court, the Milton case. A three-judge court looked at Alabama and said, under this jingles analysis, we think that drawing one is not sufficient. There, a second one should be drawn in an area of Alabama known as the Black Belt, uh, a group uh, or a string of rural uh, communities in Alabama. They're large enough. They're compact enough. They're still racially polarized voting. There should be another district being drawn. Thank you very much for that helpful review of the law. Jason, do you disagree with anything Rick has said? And, and if not, maybe take us up from Jingles and, and tell us whether you think that there is a tension between the Jingles factors that Rick identified and the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Sure. So let me just go back to Alabama for a second. Alabama has seven congressional districts. One of the seven is a majority-minority district and was drawn that way beginning in the early 1990s. And when when Rick said that there isn't tension between Section 2 and the 14th Amendment, I, I, I disagree with that. Section 5 that Rick talked about resulted in a series of cases in the 1990s in front of the court where in the the Bush 41 administration, the Justice Department pursued something that they referred to as, as I kid you not, the Black Max strategy, where they were denying preclearance to legislative plans if the DOJ could draw an additional black majority district. 
And the Supreme Court struck that down uh, and said, no, you can't do that. That's not what Section 5 is intended to do. And then that that led to a series of cases called um, essentially the the Shaw line of cases where the court looked at a whole bunch of majority-minority districts and said, look, you can't draw these districts where race is your predominant motivating factor. And, you know, what happened is so a series of districts in North Carolina were struck down that were drawn to have race as the predominant factor. This is the famous one where the the district traveled down the center of an interstate highway to connect two minority areas. Um, The court struck down a district that had been drawn to connect the Austin area of Texas to the Rio Grande Valley, and the court struck that down. And, you know, so fast forward a number of years. It hasn't been since the early 90s that the Supreme, that a federal district court has ordered the creation of a new majority-minority congressional district. And Alabama says, look, we've had this this way for 30 years. Our population really hasn't shifted. But the only way that you can draw a second majority-minority district in Alabama is to reach a finger down into Mobile County, which has never been split in the history of Alabama's drawing of congressional districts, and grab African-American population that lives in Mobile County, where it is entirely surrounded by white population, and draw a finger down into Mobile in order to configure the state into a second majority-minority district. And by the way, these majority-minority districts are barely majority-minority districts. They're like 50.02% African-American population or 50.02%. 0.7% African American population. And the only way they can do that is by drawing this finger down into Mobile County. And if you're a legislator and you had been like, hey, why don't I draw a finger down into Mobile County? Legislative council would likely have told you, no, you can't draw on the purpose of race. And if you draw that finger down into Mobile County and you carve carefully around African American neighborhoods in Mobile to connect them to African-American communities on the far eastern side of the state, some 180 miles away, the only reason you did that was race. And the Shaw line of cases would tell you that's unlawful. So the legislature did this and didn't draw a second majority minority district. And then they got sued and the court said, oh, well, of course you should have known. The trial court said, well, of course you should have known that you needed to draw a finger down into Mobile to literally carve out black population from surrounding white population to draw a second majority minority district. Most legislators, after listening to the court's pronouncements for the last 30 years since the Shaw line of cases, would say, if I have to do that, I violate the 14th Amendment by doing it. So how can a statute, namely Section 2, tell me that that's required? And that's really, I think, where Alabama is facing a real tension here. Thank you for reminding us that this case arises in Mobile, which was the place that originally gave rise to the Voting Rights Amendments of 1982. Rick, Jason says that based on the Supreme Court's statements in the Shaw line of cases, using race as the predominant factor in redistricting violates the 14th Amendment. And he says that to the degree that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is interpreted to require Uh, districtors to take race into account, it violates the 14th Amendment. I I gather that Justice Thomas has has suggested that, that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is itself unconstitutional. Is is that an accurate statement of Justice Thomas's position? And do other justices on the Roberts Court share that view? That's a great question, Jeff. And first, let's talk about Justice Thomas, because I think he's um, has a, a, a very much a minority view on the question. He says, and Justice Gorsuch agrees with him, that Section 2 does not, as a matter of statutory interpretation, even apply to redistricting. And although Justice Thomas asked a a couple of questions, um, he wasn't really engaged in the argument. And Justice Gorsuch, uh, who had concurred with Justice Thomas the last time, he said that Section 2 doesn't apply to redistricting, didn't ask a single question. So I take it that those two justices don't think that Alabama violated uh, the Voting Rights Act because they don't think that it has uh, any application to redistricting. And we can talk about whether that's accurate or not, but I don't think any of the other justices agree with that. So I don't think, you know, there's two votes with Alabama for sure, but not on the same reasoning. Um, and Justice Thomas has suggested in other contexts that the Voting Rights Act itself could be unconstitutional to the extent that it's in the areas where it applies. But I think I fundamentally disagree with Jason kind of on the terms of Shaw itself and also I'm against the whole Shaw line of cases. 
But let me focus on the, on the first point. So uh, as Jason said, in 1993, the Supreme Court said that if you make race the predominant factor in redistricting, it's unconstitutional unless the state has a compelling interest in uh, taking race into account. And the Supreme Court has said, for a number of cases, said we assume without deciding that if Section 2 actually requires the creation of a majority-minority district, that would be a compelling interest that would justify this. And then I believe it was in Bush versus Vera where Justice O'Connor and the former uh, liberal justices went beyond just assuming that Section 2 was a compelling interest, said that it was. And in all of the cases where the court has found a Shaw violation in cases involving Section 2, the way the court has done it is said, it's true that Section 2 could be a justification if Section 2 required the drawing of these districts, but it doesn't require the drawing of these districts, for example, because the minority population is too disparate, too spread out. So the reason I disagree with Jason on this point, you know, first and foremost, is because I think the court has recognized that if Section 2 actually requires it, that is justified. And uh, in line with that, I thought it was quite interesting, and this is something, Jeff, I'm sure you're very uh, you, you were very keen on hearing, Justice Jackson, newest justice on the court, uh, referred to the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, the Reconstruction Amendments, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, and said that race consciousness was permissible. So she was making an originalist argument that taking race into account in order to deal with past discrimination is appropriate and constitutional which calls into question the Shaw line of cases. I've always questioned the Shaw line of cases. I question them when conservatives tried to use them to uh, attack the creation of more majority minority districts. I questioned them when uh, people on the left in, the, in, in more recent years have tried to use it. I don't think it's a, it, it really is a cause of action because it's not about vote dilution. It's about the message that is supposedly sent when voters are divided by race and put into district. But putting that aside, I think on its own terms, Shaw is not a problem uh, when it comes to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that's why I disagree with Jason's initial statement that there's this tension. I think there was this tension when we had Section 5, which, uh, you know, on the one hand, you had this you no know, backsliding provision. On the other hand, you had don't take race too much into account. I think with Section 5, there was much more of this tension. But I don't think properly interpreted in the Jingles case in 1986 that there is this tension, especially given what the court said in Bush versus Vera. Jason, Rick says that uh, there's a disagreement on the court between justices like Justice Thomas, who suggests that the voting rights amendments themselves may violate the 14th Amendment, and justices including Justice O'Connor and a majority of the court in uh, Bush and Vera, who said explicitly that uh, compliance with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was a compelling interest. And I think in Bush and Vera, Justice O'Connor wrote a concurrence with her own opinion to, to, to make that point. And then Rick notes that Justice Jackson, uh, during her second day of oral arguments, had a significant intervention where she says, I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account, that creates an equal protection problem. When I looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, what the framers and founders thought about, when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, in a race-conscious way. Jason, what, what do you make of Justice Jackson's suggestion that uh, to the degree that Justice Thomas is suggesting that the 14th Amendment prohibits any racial classification in voting, any race consciousness in voting, that uh, she's suggesting Justice Thomas is not being faithful to the original understanding of the 14th Amendment? Well, for the originalists on the court, that's uh, they're going to have to decide whose view of the original interpretation they, uh, they want to support. Uh, and clearly, Justice Jackson has thrown down a marker challenging Justice Thomas's view of the original interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And I think we're going to see that play out later this month in the arguments about the um, affirmative action cases out of Harvard and out of North Carolina. Um, I think you're going to see some of those similar tensions playing out in that argument. But but back to back to the Jingles test and, and the 14th Amendment and, and the Shaw line of cases, you know, it was interesting that it came out at oral argument. You know, a lot of people, when they referred to the, the part one of the Jingles test, have for years said reasonably compact. And the justices pointed out that what they actually said in, in Jingles was reasonably configured, right? And so the question is, is it reasonable to ask Alabama to, or to require Alabama to draw that finger down into Mobile to carve out black population to draw a second district or not. And I think that, you know, we, if you listen to the, the questioning of Justice Alito and Justice Jackson, 
um, both of Alabama and of the other two um, parties that presented oral argument, the question really is, how do you determine what a reasonable configuration of a majority-minority district is? And, and you know, I'm counsel for Louisiana in a, a, a essentially a parallel case called Robinson that's been stayed and held in abeyance pending the outcome of Merrill. But in Robinson, when they came up with the when the plaintiffs in the case came up with their reasonable interpretation, basically what they did to draw their second majority minority district was take every major city in the eastern two thirds of Louisiana and divide those cities between their black neighborhoods and their white neighborhoods and said, oh, no, that's a wholly reasonable configuration. Well, if the goal of the Voting Rights Act is to reduce discrimination in voting and plaintiffs these days say, no, the only way to essentially not discriminate is to discriminate, you know, that's kind of a challenge for the notion that we're not supposed to be discriminating. And I think that's really what Alabama is saying here, which is, look, how am I supposed to not discriminate on the basis of race if I have to go reach fingers down into some counties and reach from the far southwestern corner of the state to the far eastern corner of the state to configure a district that makes a bare majority minority? And I mean, how does that afford an equal opportunity and how is that a reasonable configuration? And I think that's really what this case is going to turn on. Rick, Jason has emphasized Justice Alito's language about was the district reasonably configured. Justice Kagan responded in her questions, there's no indication in Jingles or in any of our cases that the court did mean reasonably configured in the way that Justice Alito suggests. Describe the disagreement between Justice Alito and Justice Kagan about the reasonably configured test and why that's important. I think it's worth backing up for a second before we get there and talk about what Alabama's really arguing. And they they had essentially two arguments. Uh, the first one uh, is Jingles test is wrong. You basically have to show intent, uh, and you know we have to rethink what Section Two means if you look at the language of Section Two itself. The Supreme Court's gotten it wrong since 1986, and that got no purchase on the court. And the Alabama's Attorney General barely defended, or didn't even defend that position. So then there was this backup position. It was I, I felt like. When I was listening to the oral argument, uh, Alito was making uh, the arguments for Alabama. And and to some extent, uh, Justice Jackson and Justice Kagan were making arguments um, for the challengers. What I think Justice Alito was getting at, remember I talked about Jingles has a three-part threshold test and then followed by the totality of circumstances. What I think Alito wants to do is he wants to tweak or alter the first part, which requires that the minority group be large and sufficiently compact that you can draw a district where minority voters could elect representatives of their choice. And that's been a test that's been really easy to apply. Even uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, when he dissented from the, the stay in this case, said, yeah, if you apply jingles, it's a no-brainer. Yeah? The three-judge court unanimously agreed that it was a violation of jingles. In fact, the districts that were drawn uh, by the court were more compact than the districts that Alabama had drawn for itself. And so, uh, you know, Jason is saying, oh, nobody knows how to draw these districts. We know quite well how to draw districts under jingles. This was compact enough as these standards go. So what Justice Alito seems to be trying to do is to embrace Alabama's backup argument, which is... You don't have to draw a minority opportunity district, a district where minority voters can elect representatives of their choice, unless if you are using just race-neutral traditional criteria like protecting incumbents, looking at the lines where um, the city and county boundaries are, that you would happen to come up with a minority district. It would turn a race-conscious statute, one that is deliberately race-conscious in order to deal with the problems of past discrimination, into one that's race-neutral. It would turn section two on its head. And it's very much like what Justice Alito did in the Brnovich case, which we talked about on the podcast uh, about a a year and a half ago, or a a little bit over a year ago, where he mangled section two of the Voting Rights Act applied outside the context of redistricting. He pretends he's sticking to precedent, but instead he is not faithful to text or to history or to precedent. It's a radical rewriting of the Voting Rights Act in order to help white Republicans. That's what Justice Alito is doing. It is a, I would say, one of the most nakedly political moves I've seen on this court in quite some time. And in some ways, 
in, in my view, worse than what Justice Thomas is doing. Justice Thomas is, you know, at, at least upfront about his disdain for these race-conscious laws. When I think Alito probably shares Justice Thomas's views, but not his courage. Uh, Jason, strong words from Rick. He says that Justice Alito is rewriting the first of the jingles test to replace the requirement that the racial or language minority group is sufficiently large and geographically compact enough to constitute a majority in a single member district to ask uh, districters to draw districts using race neutral criteria. And he says that this would be a nakedly political act that would is not faithful to text, history, or precedent. Uh, do you agree or disagree? And 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 how do you view Justice Alito's test? I mean, I'm I'm back to the tension that legislators face here, right? Keep in mind that Alabama was one of the states that actually lost a 14th Amendment case the last decade. The Alabama Legislative Black Caucus case came up to the court twice, and the Alabama legislature was told by the U.S. Supreme Court and by a three-judge panel that it was too race-conscious when it drew majority-minority districts. So you take a legislature that has just lost in front of the Supreme Court because they were told that they were too race-conscious, and then they go back and they try to basically maintain a status quo, and then they're told, oh, nope, when you drew your congressional districts, you shouldn't have maintained the status quo. You should have made a radical change with race at the top of your mind when we just told you that you were wrong to do that when you redrew your legislative districts last decade. So the tension that these legislators face is incredible, and I think that's what Alito is trying to wrestle with. Um, and, you know, if you go back to to kind of the where African-American population is in Alabama and you go back to the Alabama Legislative Black Caucus, not the Supreme Court decision, but the last decision on remand from the Supreme Court when they had to redraw their districts to be less conscious of race, Judge Pryor, who was also the prior attorney general of Alabama, uh, and this is Bill Pryor, not Jill Pryor, from the 11th Circuit, was sitting on the three-judge panel, and he described the different minority populations in Alabama and how they're geographically separated from each other. I believe he described five different pockets of of minority population. Um, and he kind of described geographically where they were in relation to each other and basically said they're really not connected. And so in order to achieve what the Alabama plaintiffs want to do, you're literally trying to come up with creative ways to have computers come up with a configuration that draws together what are, as Judge Pryor described, five different distinct minority population centers and trying to combine them into, in this case, two districts. So I think that's what Alito is trying to wrestle with, which is how do you go, how do you tell the legislature when they drew the the majority minority districts that they drew too many and they were too majority minority but here, you know, they should they should have known to draw two districts combining five distinct, you know, populations into districts that were barely majority minority including the kinds of hooks and fingers that the court has previously told legislators they couldn't do. Um, you know, how is a how is a legislature to know that there's a compelling interest here that requires them to draw the hooks and fingers to combine the disparate populations when drawing what they drew last decade on their legislative maps was okay or was not okay. So the tension, I think, is there. And I think Alito gets that tension from a legislator's perspective in some ways more than other members, more than other current members of the court. Uh, You know, keep in mind when, when Justice Alito was growing up, his father was the director of legislative services for the state of New Jersey. Uh, and actually, his his dad, um, in a footnote in Carter versus Daggett, is is cited by the Supreme Court uh, in a redistricting case. So Justice Alito, you know, from from growing up as a kid and being around legislators and his dad working for the legislature, I think understands the challenges that legislators face in a way that probably no justice other than Justice O'Connor herself, being a former legislator, actually did. And you know, in these redistricting cases. He kind of asks over and over again, like, what's left for the legislatures here? What what role? How are legislators supposed to know what the answers are? And he did it in the in the political gerrymandering cases, and he's doing it again here in the Section Two context. So I think Alito is really a pivotal one to watch here. You know, as as Rick noted, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch sort of think that Section Two doesn't apply to redistricting at all. So that's two votes for Alabama. Obviously, we know where where Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Jackson are. 
So that really leaves us to the remaining couple of justices to figure out what the controlling opinion of the court is going to be. And I think Alito is going to play a critical role in that. Thanks for the fascinating biographical detail and for calling our attention to the Karcher and Daggett case from 1983. And as you say, there is a footnote to uh, the affidavit of Samuel A. Alito, executive director of the Office of Legislative Services of the New Jersey legislature. Rick, uh, Jason says that Justice Alito is grappling with a tension between the 14th Amendment, which prohibits in the court's view or the majority of the court's view race being a predominant factor and and the requirements of the Voting Rights Act and that Justice Alito is trying to reconcile that tension. Do you agree with that charitable reading of Justice Alito's uh, efforts? And tell us in that sense how his proposal of focusing on reasonable compactness differs from Alabama's original proposal, which is that Section 2 is only triggered in the face of intentional racial discrimination. Well, no, I don't think that Justice Alito is being forthcoming in what he thinks. He's shown incredible hostility to the Voting Rights Act. I mentioned the Brnovich case from last summer. There was also Abbott versus Perez, a Section 2 case out of Texas, where Justice Alito did a lot of damage to the Voting Rights Act. I I wrote a piece, people uh, listening can Google the Supreme Court's pro-partisanship turn, where I analyze how Justice Alito in Abbott versus Perez said uh, things that made it easier for white Republicans to maintain as much power as possible in their states. So, for example, you have to presume that a state legislature acts in good faith and, you know, given Texas and other states' uh, records when it comes to race and voting rights and rates and redistricting. I, I think that presumption is, is should be turned on its head. Um, he's been uniformly hostile. When he filled out an application, if we're going back in history, Jason talks about uh, Alito uh, remembering his dad working on uh, drawing districts. We can go back to his application to work at the Justice Department, where he talked about the Warren Court's one-person, one-vote cases as one of the things he was really opposed to. Uh, this is a justice that does not embrace democracy. This is a justice that does not um, believe that minority voters need protection in the political process. So why wouldn't he embrace the Alabama's more extreme argument of a reading Section 2 to have an intent-based test? Because he'd face more friction for doing it. Remember, it was Justice Alito who wrote the Dobbs decision. Uh, the leaked Dobb decision that uh, even after it was criticized in draft, he didn't make any changes, even uh, you know to citing uh, to some misogynistic sources from the uh, 18th century. Justice Alito, you know, has already taken a hit somewhat. And why not just do the same thing, which is essentially weaken protection for minority voters without taking the hit of saying you're overturning precedent, you know, overturning the jingles test. So. It's just a cheap and, I would say, disingenuous way to try to water down or weaken the Voting Rights Act. Jason, before we leave these points, do you believe that Alabama was right to argue that Section 2 should be interpreted to have an intent requirement? And and do you think that Justices Thomas or Gorsuch or any other justices may agree with them? Uh, I mean, Thomas and Gorsuch are where they are on Section 2. I don't think whether there's an intent requirement or not is going to move them. Um, you know, I think it's been, I think most of the justices would probably say it, it's an effects test, not an intent test following the, the congressional action after city of Mobile. So I don't know that that's where this case is going to turn. Um, I think this case is really going to turn on, you know, what exactly is reasonably required. And one thing I do want to, to point out, um, you know, as we talk about kind of, and the court has focused on this a couple of times in, in cases involving, race and voting, um, you know, the country is not the same country that it was in 1965. You know, in the 70s and 80s, um, when you look at the Congressional Black Caucus, almost every Congressional Black Caucus member represented a majority black district. These days, you know, more and more African-American members are representing districts that are not majority minority. I think something like less than half of the Congressional Black Caucus currently represents majority minority districts. So this notion that minority representatives are only going to be elected if you have a majority minority district is proving less and less true over time, which I think actually shows that some of how our our society and our culture has changed, where 
people are you know less likely to vote on on race lines than they are on party lines and you know one of the things about section 2 that i think we have to keep in mind it says on account of race right so it's not disputed right it's a factual factual matter that you know in most places around the country something like 90 plus percent of african american vote votes for democrats right and that doesn't vary depending on whether the candidate is white or black or Hispanic, that's just the vote for the Democratic candidate. And there's actually a prior judicial ruling from this last decade from Alabama, where the judge, you know, the district judge that dismissed the claim against the Alabama judiciary kind of chronicled this and said, look, what gets reflected here is not necessarily motivated on the basis of race, but, you know, the fact that that Democrats in Alabama are losing statewide elections is the decline of the Democratic Party. It's not a racially motivated thing. It's just the decline of the Democratic Party in Alabama. So, you know, Section 2 also says on account of race, and I don't think we've we've sort of broached that subject here, but I think you've got to have some showing that this isn't just a partisan issue, right? Because if you look back at these cases over the last 10 years, Democrats brought a lawsuit in Virginia and said, no, you didn't need a second black congressional district there. Why? Because they thought it would benefit the Democratic Party. Why are Mark Elias and the Elias group plaintiffs in Alabama? Because they think adding a second majority black district down there is going to add another Democrat. So it is as partisan for them as, as, uh, as Rick says it is for Justice Alito, right? I mean, you've got, you've got the Elias group and their allies trying to take apart majority minority districts in the Virginia House, in the Virginia congressional delegation, um, and then trying to add majority minority districts in Louisiana and Alabama, why? Because they're motiv- motivated by partisanship, not motivated by expanding the number of minorities in the legislature. If you look at the, the outcome of what happened in the Bethune Hill case in Virginia, which was one of the cases where the Virginia legislature had some racial targets based on anecdotal testimony from the Black Caucus that districts needed to be at least 55% African-American to elect candidates of choice, uh, the plaintiffs in that case convinced the court that that was wrong and when the special master redrew those districts, uh, two of the districts were dropped from north of 55% African-American to, I think one was dropped to 52% and one was dropped to 49%. And guess what happened in the 2021 elections? White Republicans won both of those districts. And guess how many seats Republicans hold the Virginia legislature by? Like one seat. So, you know, this this notion that somehow the plaintiffs in these cases are are white knights for minority groups is really not true. I, you know, in a lot of cases, the plaintiffs in these cases are motivated as much by partisanship as, as Rick sort of casts on the judges. Rick, do you agree or not with Jason that the voters are motivated in these cases as much by partisanship as uh, race? What are the consequences for that, for the application of the Jingles test and do you see a majority of the court converging around Justice Alito's reasonably configured uh, rethinking of the Jingles test uh, or not? So, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that um, it's artificial to talk about race or party. Uh, I've written a lot about this. In a place like Alabama, something like 90% of voters who are African-American vote for the Democratic Party. More than two-thirds of white voters vote for the Republican Party. So when there's discrimination against uh, African-American voters, there's discrimination against Democrats. So, it's, you know, it's kind of artificial to uh, separate that out. Um, I certainly think there are some parties that come in that really want to maximize drawing districts to help the Democratic Party. No doubt about it. I don't think that explains, uh, you know, the, the position of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. They're not lawyers for Democrats. They're lawyers for black voters. And I think their motivation is to try to assure that there's fair representation. Um, just like when I speak to Nina Perales and she's doing work for MALDEF in Texas, it's not about helping Democrats, it's about helping Latino voters. And so, um, yeah, of course there are partisan actors who are trying to, for, for a very long time, both Democrats and Republicans have tried to manipulate their understanding of the Voter Rights Act to help their parties. You know, I think the Voter Rights Act should be read not to help the parties, but to help the minority voters that it was meant to protect. As far as what's likely to happen, it's hard to say from oral argument, because I remember the oral argument in the Brnovich case. And in the Brnovich case, I felt like Justices um, Kavanaugh and Barrett asked some really interesting, difficult questions. 
it signaled to me that they were grappling with these issues and trying to come up with some kind of subtle way of, of, of dealing with the meaning of Section 2 outside the context of redistricting. But then, in the end, they signed on to the horrible opinion by Justice Alito without saying a word. And so we might see the same thing here. Alito's definitely taking the lead here. Uh, justices to watch, you've got Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch clearly against drawing the districts. The justices to watch are Barrett and Kavanaugh, to a lesser extent, Roberts. Um, Roberts is no friend of the Voting Rights Act. I should say that Roberts, if we're going to go back to history, Roberts was the point person for the Reagan administration in trying to prevent the creation of the effects test in 1982 uh, when Congress rewrote the Voting Rights Act. And uh, he failed in getting that language taken out. Uh, Roberts is no friend of the Voting Rights Act, but he's a relative moderate on this court, given how far right this court has gone. And so I heard some very hopeful things from Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett about looking for some reasonable way to preserve the jingles test. But, you know, I don't know, based on the experience with Brnovich, if we can count on that. Jason, how do you see Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett and Roberts uh, based on their questions and oral argument? Do you think that they'll preserve jingles or not? I don't think this is the last time we're going to see this Alabama case at the court. Um, What I see happening after listening to oral argument is you know, I think there will be a a majority of the court to reverse the trial court, uh, and then I think it'll be sent down for further proceedings with some kind of split slash plurality opinion from the the majority of the six justices who I think are going to, at the very least, concur in the judgment that the lower court should be reversed. So, I guess my fear is this is going to we're going to have, you know, two or three opinions from the controlling majority who all concur that the lower court should be reversed. And then we're going to get a remand down to the trial court for it to try to sort through what the justices actually mean. And a year from now or a year and a half from now, right, just as we're coming into the 24 election cycle, we'll be back up at the Supreme Court for Alabama too, um, you know, after they've had more of a full trial process. Because remember, this is still an appeal from a preliminary injunction. So I think we're going to have Alabama 1, and in a year or two, we're going to have Alabama 2. I don't think this case is going to conclusively resolve how we're going to interpret Section 2 going forward. Rick, if the court does say that you don't have to draw a second district here and send it back, how big a deal would that be? Justice Kagan noted in the oral argument that in Brnovich, the court stressed that Section 2 still is available for vote dilution claims. Um, if, if this district is struck down, would, would Section 2 be defanged in the same way that Section 5 was? It's really hard to know because the devil will be in the details. There are ways that Justice Alito could write a majority opinion that would say no district here or, or remand it, as, as Jason suggested, for potential further consideration that wouldn't make a radical change. Or it could be done in a much more radical way that would cause there to be many fewer minority preferred uh, candidates elected to office. I think that, you know, when you think about how the Voting Rights Act jingles test was meant to be put in place, it was meant to be what I think it was Justice Jackson in a rural argument called self-sunsetting. The idea is once white and black voters don't prefer candidates on the basis of race, you can no longer make out the jingles preconditions, and there is no Voting Rights Act violation. Uh, in many parts of the country, uh, there are places where white voters and minority voters prefer the same candidates. You know, they don't divide on the basis of race, and then there is no good voting rights claim. And I would like to see Section 2 sunset because we don't have racially polarized voting in the United States. Until that time comes, though, minority voters still need the protection of the Voting Rights Act to assure that they have some fair representation in Congress and in state and local legislative bodies. Jason, on, on, on that point, you, you said that racially polarized voting is less salient than uh, voting on the basis of partisanship. Do you agree with Rick that in some parts of the country there's less racially polarized voting and that the Voting Rights Act, uh, the need for it might indeed sunset on its own? I think Rick is right in that. And I think, you know, you see that in, you know, as, as Rick demonstrated, you know, he's he's right about what the research shows about African-American voters. Hispanic voters, though, are, are even more difficult to put into kind of any kind of general categorization in a lot of ways, because how Hispanic vote breaks down depends on kind of where you are in the country, what state you're in, even what part of what state. I mean, there are parts of, of Hispanic population in Florida 
where Republicans get a majority of the Hispanic vote. Uh, there are parts of Texas now where Republicans are getting a majority of the Hispanic vote. So this notion that somehow, you know, any one particular party has forever control over the, the votes of, of voters of a particular race, um, I think is going to decline over time. Um, I also think, you know, as as America turns into more of a, a mixed race country, we're going to see more people who don't clearly identify as one particular race or another, as the Census Bureau kind of shows an increase in, in people who have mixed race identification. So I think this notion that we're going to be forever polarized on the basis of race, I actually think is going to prove not to be true over the long run, just because of, of changing voting preferences and, and changing racial identifications. Let's take a beat before we close on the debate between Justice Jackson and Justice Thomas about the 14th and 15th Amendments. Rick, I'm confident in saying that the 14th Amendment was not intended to apply to political rights at all. It was only intended to apply to civil rights. And the 15th Amendment was not intended to prohibit all racial classifications. It wasn't meant to apply to poll taxes and literacy tests, which were used to disenfranchise African-Americans. And support for both of those points you can find online at the Constitution Center's early drafts of the 14th and 15th Amendments that rejected that anti-classification rule. Do do I have that history right? And and, in that sense, just as a matter of original understanding, when it comes to political rights, do you think Justice Jackson is correct or not? I'm going to have to defer to you uh, on that. I'm not a historian of that period. Uh, There are many other uh, scholars, uh, Professor Tolson, for example, of USC, uh, Professor Foner of Columbia. I mean, there are people who studied this uh, more closely than I have. I took Justice Jackson's comment there to be less about the Voting Rights Act case and more about the affirmative action case, which Jason alluded to. I think that's where this uh, debate is going to come to a head. If you take originalism seriously, and the original understanding of the 14th Amendment was that you could have race-based classifications to deal with problems with uh, race discrimination outside the context of voting, then affirmative action is potentially permissible uh, under an originalist understanding. I think she was talking to Justice Barrett. You know, we, we, we don't know that much about Justice Barrett. We know she's an originalist. You know, we don't know how serious she, how seriously she's going to take her originalism in these cases. So what I would say about the point on voting rights is you can look at the enforcement clauses in the 15th Amendment, in the 19th Amendment, in the 24th Amendment, in the 26th Amendment. You can look at the elections clause in Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution, and Congress has ample power to put these conditions in for uh, the Voting Rights Act under Section 2. Even if you set aside the 14th Amendment, Congress has so much power to do so. So, you know, I don't think there's any question about Congress's power to do it. I don't think there's any question that uh, the idea of race consciousness was not foreign to the drafters of the Reconstruction Amendments. So, you know, I I think it's a constitutional non-starter. And I I, want to go back to one point in history, uh, which is when... uh, the Supreme Court was deciding whether or not to overturn Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. This is the one I mentioned earlier that required jurisdictions for the history of race discrimination to get federal approval before making changes in their voting rules. And when there was the challenge to Section 5 and people were saying, this is so radical, you're going to kill off minority uh, voting rights, the response was, oh, don't worry, we always have Section 2. And when I heard that at the time, I thought Section 2 is next on the chopping block. And what we see in cases like Brnovich in this case is, That's absolutely true. That now that Section 5 has been eliminated, those who oppose protecting minority voting rights are going after their next biggest target. Jason, your thoughts on the historical question, and then we'll close. I said to Rick that I I thought, based on early texts of the 14th and 15th Amendments, that it's uncontroversial that the 14th Amendment was originally not intended to apply to political rights at all. It was only intended to apply to civil rights. And that the 15th Amendment wasn't intended to ban all racial classifications, including poll taxes and literacy tests, but just ballot access. Um, Do you agree or disagree with that historical claim? And what are the implications, do you think, for the debate between Justice Jackson and Justice Thomas? So I'm going to have to to beg off from that debate as well, because I, I too, am not a historian or or historic scholar. Um, I mean, I think we're going to see Justice Jackson and Justice Thomas probably battle this out. And I think 
Each of them are going to cite to you know historical analysis or historical documents that they support that, that support their view of of those amendments. And I think that it's fairly clear which sides they're both on. So they're both going to make an originalism argument. Thank you, Justice Scalia, um, but come out with vastly different interpretations of of kind of their view of what an originalist interpretation would be. Um, you know, who's right, who's wrong, I, I'm certainly not going to decide between the two justices, but it, it seems clear that the two of them are headed for, you know, a, a, a head-to-head battle on this, not just in not just in Merrill, but also in the upcoming, you know, Harvard and North Carolina cases as well. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this excellent discussion, uh, illuminating and deep about a really complicated and important issue. Rick, first closing thoughts to you. Based on the oral arguments, what do you believe that the stakes and legacy of the Alabama voting case will be? It's always hard to figure out what's going to happen from watching oral arguments. I think the stakes here are are very high. If the court uh, sides with Alabama, uh, it depends on how they side with Alabama, it will either be a, a small blow or a major blow against protection of minority voting rights in the United States. In contrast, if the court sides with the challengers to uh, the Alabama redistricting, I think we'd be preserving the status quo, which is that the well-established jingles test would be applied and minority voters would still be able to have opportunities to meaningfully have representation in Congress and in state and local legislative bodies. And so I think that's really what we're thinking about uh, as we look forward. How much uh, damage might the Supreme Court do or are we going to continue to stay the course? And so uh, we'll probably have to wait until somewhere close to June to find out the answer to that question. Jason, last word in this great discussion is to you. Based on the oral arguments, what do you think that the stakes and legacy of the Alabama voting case, Merrill and Milligan, will be? I think this isn't going to be the end of the story. Um, I think we're going to wind up back down for proceedings in front of the three-judge panel, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're back up in 12 to 18 months on an Alabama 2 kind of decision. Based on the oral argument, I don't know that the justices are ready to definitively kind of resolve the future of section two. And I think it, there's going to, you know, fortunately or unfortunately be a lot more litigation before we have some clear direction. Thank you so much, Rick Hassan and Jason Torchinsky for a civil, thoughtful and illuminating discussion of Marilyn Milligan and the future of section two of the Voting Rights Act. Rick, Jason, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Dave Stotts. Research was provided by Sophia Gardell, Kelsang Dolma, Liam Kerr, Emily Campbell, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Withy People on Apple and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of thoughtful, civil, and deep constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the dedication to lifelong learning and to civil dialogue from people across the country who are inspired by our mission. You can support it by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.